Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. Hey guys, it's Ruben from Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. Connection Loop. I, I don't even remember the name. It's that crazy right now. <laughs> um, I got Swish on the line with me and I'm I'm so psyched to talk to Swish because we actually met, it's probably been almost a year now, maybe more, yeah. but I, I remember Swish, you did something that was, that was really, really special. And I remember what you did and it was really kind of two things, but you, you put together a group of individuals and this was in New York and we met at this great little restaurant and you just put together a group of people. And it was, it was the way in which you did it was so, was so nice and compelling and interesting because I got to sit there at a round table and, and get to know you and get to know some of your friends. And I remember you said something really specifically, and I said, can everyone just go around the room and say what they're, they're, they've accomplished and what they've done, and don't worry about coming off like you have an ego or you're bragging. Just, just, just give, us, give us the juice, you know? <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm going to do the same thing to you right now, man. I, I want to understand how you've been able to accomplish all the things you know, at your age. Um, and I, I just got to hear from you, man. Like, tell us everything and don't worry about the ego. I'll use your own line on you. <laughs> <laughs> so firstly, yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it was amazing to meet you that day as well. I remember we immediately connected because we actually came early a little bit for the dinner. We were waiting for everyone else. Uh, and it was just awesome to hear what you're building with Dub. Um, I think for me in particular, everything that I've done, whether it's building a company now that's raised close to $2 million, we have some incredible brands working with us. We've made an acquisition last November. If it's speaking under Saw one that. of the most you know, prestigious speaking bureaus called Speaker Spotlight and doing a couple of TEDx talks, or if it's investing in companies, advising companies, and even having a book coming out, everything that I've done in the most non-modest way, I think, has come down to two things networking with the right people and always looking to provide value to them first and not trying as much as possible to exploit a relationship and then number two it's come down to just work ethic you know trying as much as possible to build out a schedule where i can balance various things um, but i can always prioritize certain tasks effectively and get them done nice man no that's that's uh, that's very eloquently put so you guys made an acquisition. So talk to me about, about that. You guys were were very active in the social intelligence space. I'd love to get into that, into that a little bit. And then mm -hmm. what your roadmap looks like. Totally. Yeah. So when we started TrueFan two and a half years ago now, pretty pretty crazy how time flies. Uh, in December 2017, we initially wanted to build a platform where any brand, any celebrity in the world could go on this platform and just find their top fans. You could sell directly to these top fans. You could reward them. You could use them as brand ambassadors. That's what we wanted to build. Fast forward now two years, um, we've kind of realized that we can actually build a social intelligence platform, which means that we can actually help any brand connect with their grassroots communities, connect with their top 20% of their audience, but also go through their entire following on Twitter or Instagram and slice and dice that audience to be able to find an audience they want to market to. That's where the acquisition uh. comes into play. So about three months ago, we acquired a company called Social Rank. We looked up to them. Like, we really did. Like, the founders of Social Rank are geniuses, in my opinion. We got in a phone call with them a year before we bought the company. Um, they've been mentors of ours. And when they were selling the company, we didn't even come in, by the way, as the highest offer. 
they chose us because they just liked our vision, what we wanted to do with what they had built and the customers that they had acquired. And they just trusted that we would work in their best interests as well. So it's just been a crazy ride being able to bring their customers, their technology, their brand into the true fan ecosystem. So you mentioned something that's kind of interesting. You mentioned, you know, this idea of tapping into the to the influencer space. And and that's that's a really interesting topic. And I think that's gone through this evolution. It's meant a lot of different things before. You know, I've seen that LinkedIn post that you have on LinkedIn where I think you got 140,000 likes, and I think you got almost 4,000 comments on one LinkedIn post. Yeah. So to talk about um, influencers, and not to mention you as an influencer with engagement like that, would be remiss. I wanted to understand, you know, what has been your take on creating original content, doing what you just said, which is providing value? What has been your platform? What has been the method in which you've, you've really done that? Um, yeah. To, to put your stuff out there. Totally. And I think it speaks to the virtue of TrueFan, which is I chose LinkedIn as my core platform. And the reason I think I became big on LinkedIn was twofold. One, I was relatable. I was one of the early students to start posting on LinkedIn. And when I started posting two or three years ago, I was sharing content on some things that every student could relate to. Procrastination, feeling lost, not knowing what you're passionate, eating ramen for dinner, like literal mental health issues that my friends had gone through that I was talking about in a very honest, vulnerable light. So I think that was number one is relatability. I was able to immediately find a community to tap into. I started being relatable to what they were going through and connecting with them on that basis. Number two is everything that I've done thus far is very community oriented, which again, it speaks to the virtues of TrueFan, right? We built TrueFan because we believe that for brands, they need to realize that loyalty is a two-way street. If consumers are being loyal to them, they have to be loyal to consumers, especially yeah. over social media. And that's what I've done. You know, to date, I still try to comment back to every single person I can, try to show them that it's not an avatar on the other side of this post. It's <laughs> right. a human being like me who can engage with them and, re and really appreciate them for taking time out of their day to comment. And how has that, that all changed now with, with our current climate? Like how... What's what's your take now as a company, as an individual, as a personality? Yeah, I think with the company, I mean, we had a very clear manifesto going into this year that we believe paid advertising is the bubble. We think Instagram, Google, Facebook ads are highly ineffective um, for four key reasons. Ad fraud, brands not knowing where their ads are being placed. And sometimes it can be put on top of racist YouTube content like it was for JP Morgan and Verizon last year. You know, ad blockers being at an all time high and they're only continuing to grow on platforms like YouTube and then brands not even knowing if where they're advertising to is a new market or people that already had buying intent. Right. So what we believe is that influencer marketing is going to continue to be dominant. And now more than ever, where a lot of consumers are being hit hard by COVID. This is the time for yeah. every brand, I believe, to truly show that they're purpose driven by reaching out to their grassroots communities made up of super fans and micro influencers, equipping them with the right content, the right feeling to promote their brand and get their true message out. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched personally to be part of your journey in some capacity because you guys were, you guys actually very quickly adopted Dub and I was really psyched to see that because mm -hmm. you guys are inherently storytellers and I know yep. that you and some of the members on your team, you know, you guys naturally can build relationships through this kind of digital forum. So mm -hmm. Dub is all about that. That's what we've spent the last so many years doing is figuring out ways so that people can share stories just like this one, but then get that on social channels and email and stuff. So, you know, thanks for your support on that. Really appreciate it. No um, worries. 
Yeah. So another another kind of question that I have for you is just to pivot the convo is that you were at one point in your life a very early venture capitalist, like uncomfortably young. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, were you were you like a teenager? Were you like nineteen? Yeah, I, I was nineteen. Because um, that's uncomfortably <laughs> young. <laughs> I was working at a, at a VC called JB Fitzgerald. It's actually funny. One of my best friends is a girl named Tiffany Zong. She was working at Binary Capital when she was eighteen. Okay. Um, I guess you just attract the right crowd, really, when you, when you get into that world. But no, like I, I didn't come from a finance background. I think what I had, which is what was so attractive to JB Fitzgerald, was a good network of young entrepreneurs to tap into. They knew that I could hang around these kids, get to know them, connect to them a lot deeper than a VC could, and could qualify which ones actually had good work ethic, which ones didn't, which ones were family oriented, which ones weren't. Um, so that's, I think, the reason why they really thought I was valuable. Obviously, throughout my experience working with JB Fitzgerald, I started picking up a few chops when it came to assessing a company, figuring out what were good bets to make, being able to work on a deal like the DC United deal we made. You know, we invested into DC United, which is one of the fastest growing MLS teams. They're the most decorated MLS team with 13 trophies. So it was pretty neat to be able to do that. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me is constantly trying to invest even now. You know, like in the last year, my co-founder and I, We've put money towards Face Clan, which is the world's most popular esports organization. Um, we've put money towards a dental labs company called Smile Innovations in Vancouver. We're just constantly trying to look for opportunities to be able to put our, our feet in. And then when you when you invest, what do you what do you kind of look for? I mean, you obviously have perspective, and you're seeing something that most people are not seeing. Right. Um, what is that? What is that insight? I think twofold. I think, A, not to go with the cliche, but who the operator is. It's always good to know that I can connect with this operator. I can work with them. They're open-minded. They're hustling. They're, they're the type of person that doesn't see this as a quick buck, but sees whatever they're building as something that they want to do for the next 10, 15 years, which really is the mindset that you need to have when you approach a business. You can't approach it with a, I'm here for two years and then I'm out. Um, and I definitely learned that building TrueFan is you have to have a 5, 10, 15 year commitment. It might not be that long, but you definitely want to be prepared for that. And then I think number two is just gauging impact of the industry and the business, right? The reason why we invested in Face Clan is A, because Onik is incredibly well versed in esports, has taught me a lot about it. And we really believe that the industry is going to continue to become dominant. You know, esports already, in terms of viewership for certain tournaments, is beating traditional sports. Now, more than ever, especially with COVID, people are playing video games and younger people are going on platforms and making money and making it a full time career. So I think that the industry as a whole and where it's going is something we wanted to participate in, which is why we also made a bet. Nice, nice. You've done three TED Talks now. TEDx talks. Let's let's get into that. What was that process like? Did you pursue that? Did they invite you? Yeah. So it's cool because all three have been invitations, which um, you know, very blessed that way. In my first year of college, um, I was actually volunteering for TEDx U of T, uh, and a speaker dropped out at the last minute, and they invited <laughs> me to give the talk because they knew I had a background in debate. Uh, I debated extensively in high school, and so I gave a talk on social entrepreneurship because I'd built a nonprofit in high school. Um, and I you know, really just spoke about my experience being a young social entrepreneur. The second talk, which was, I think, about two years ago, I gave that whole talk off LinkedIn and storytelling and personal branding. You know, it's a talk that I think I've given now 150, 200 times because that's what I speak with under speaker spotlight. That's what they commissioned me out for. But uh, it was really cool to be able to get onto that TEDx stage and tell people, all right, here we go. 
this is exactly what I believe is the future storytelling. Here's where it's going to be, and here's how you participate. And then the third talk was about a couple of months ago, actually eight or nine months ago, um, I got to speak uh, on mental health, um, which was an important topic for me. Um, it's something that I've spoken about at a bunch of colleges and universities. I feel very passionate about the issue. I think everyone can relate to it. So it's really neat to be able to kind of have those three talks. And they're all very separate from each other. People always ask, would you do another one? I would say no to that right now because I don't have another topic really to, to talk about. But uh, maybe in a couple of years, you know, as I start to endeavor into various other things and my passions develop, um, it might be cool to give another talk, um, which, which could, be, could be nice. And then right now, if you wanted to recommend how people can, can actually become a TEDx speaker, what would you mm -hmm. recommend? I know that yeah. there's a form and you can yeah. look for the local events, but what's kind of the smarter way to do it? Totally. I mean, look, there's three ways, right? One is the simple application and then go and see who's on the team. Try to see if you can go on a coffee with them, meet them, interview them, connect with them in whatever way possible and let them know what you're doing. And hopefully that's good enough for them to recommend you to the main speakers committee. Mm. The second thing, though, is to just like me, pursue whatever it is you're doing and try to do it at the highest level possible. And when you do do that and when you do talk about it on a platform like LinkedIn and Instagram, people will notice people will want you to come and speak at their college, at a TEDx event, whatever it is. Um, and I think the third and final thing you could do, and honestly, I do know some people who have done this, is you could be a part of the organizing committee and then speak. You know, So if you don't have a TEDx at your college or university or in your city, you could organize that event and then put yourself on the speakers list as well, which I know some people who've done that. So you know, it kind of can go one of three ways. I think the way that I've gone about it is just committing to my project, trying to do it at a high level, and then gauging op opportunities when they come my way. That makes sense. I mean, you know, the idea of things, good things coming to you by doing hard, doing hard work, that's kind of what you were t working on, right? Which you were referencing in the beginning where it's about yeah. hard work and it's about that ethic. And yeah. then things kind of come to you. That makes sense. Yeah. I think for, I think it's like when I think of, um, there's sort of an analogy here with like getting martial arts belts. And I think a lot of people have that bucket list of things that they want to do. They right. want to be a TED speaker. They want to raise this much money. They want to sell this company for that much money. They want to take a company public and we, they call it belt chasing in martial arts, but you know, ambition chasing, you know, I, I think that I always kind of caution people to do that because anytime I've tried to do that, I've never accomplished it one for one reason or the other. It just didn't happen. And if I just, you know, hunkered down and just got my work done and just built relationships, all of the things that you said earlier, um, you know, better things have come to me. So it sounds like you're doing the exact right thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's cliche, you know, like, obviously I understand like people probably hear it all the time, put in hard work and things will happen. But again, like when people ask me, do you believe you were ever lucky? Like to an extent I do, but in most cases, I actually do believe that I've positioned myself to be lucky. Like there are actually steps before the moment of luck where I've actually legitimately put in effort and put in time towards putting myself in a very particular position to have a meeting, get an investment, hire someone. That's what I've done before. And that's where the hard work really counts. Because at the end of the day, like there's an incredible artist by the name of Chris Newman. He was actually uh, featured in Netflix's Abstract, The Art of Design. Um, his job is to come and look at a blank canvas every day and just draw. And he said, my job is literally to just show up. As long as I show up every single day, I look at that canvas, I am putting myself in a position for magic to happen. That's exactly what you do as an entrepreneur as well. You show up, not every day is going to go well, but you're putting yourself in a position for things to happen. I was watching a documentary yesterday 
on the early Disney team and the animators. There was this like dream team of like, I think less than 15 animators. And mm -hmm. they, they did all the magic back then. This was before computers, everything was hand-drawn and it was right. phenomenal. I think Tim Burton was a part of, among that list. And it was really interesting because they were doing exactly what you were talking about, where they'd start, they'd have an idea, they'd have a story, and then they just had to bring it to life. And the synergy mm -hmm. that they had and this was kind of like, this was like the, the, the pre-era, the golden era back in like, I think the 80s to the 90s. And it, it was truly amazing what they did because they did exactly what you're saying. Is they showed up and then just through collaboration, through teamwork, yeah. and through tons of creativity, they would just mm -hmm. bring things to life and create like billion, multi-billion dollar franchises. So I think yep. you're right. That's what entrepreneurship is about, you know? Yep. Um, but you know, let's be real. Entrepreneurship is also a, a pain, and it's it's a struggle, it's and it's riddled. It's riddled with with failures, you know. And I mm -hmm. think it's important when we talk about success to also talk about failures. So, what are what are some of the, the the terrible failures that you've endured, and that you know, what are the things that you've learned from as a result? Sure, and I'll preface this all by saying again, I, I'm 22. I don't think I've even hit my peak of success or failure. Um, every time I talk about my failures, my mom like laughs in the back of the audience because she's like, I've gone through a divorce. I have like mortgage payments. I still have to pay off being like, you know, had job issues. What do you know? So <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to come off like, you know, I've experienced a great deal of failure. I think for me, um, I've definitely had failed startups growing up in high school and in college. For example, I tried to start a food delivery app in my first year of college, which did not work. We got the app to a prototype stage. Um, because I wanted every college student to gain access to leftover or excess food that came from a Starbucks or a Quiznos or whatever it was. Um, but sadly, there is actually a Food Donation Act of 1994 in Canada that prevents people from making money on donated food. We did not do a legal check until eight months down the road of building the company, which was a huge mistake. Uh, and sadly, I had to close down. So there are failures like that. But then, even what was that moment like? Oh, I, let's let's go there for a minute. <laughs> It was just rough. Like it was rough because you commit yourself, right? Like I'd written a business plan. I'd gone through and built a team. I had raised a bit of money, like a very small amount of money, paid for the development cost of the prototype, gotten the prototype out, submitted applications for Y Combinator. Our co-founder and me were best friends. We were super excited to just get this going. We saw ourselves even dropping out for this project. And then eight months down the road to go through and realize, damn it, we can't do this. We can't make money on it. What are we going to do? It's just crazy. Did you consider pivoting at that moment or did you just say we're done, we're out? I think we said we're done because both my co-founder and I did know we wanted to stay in Canada and build this. And they were like, the UK actually has a version of what we wanted to build. It's called Olio, O-L-I-O. Oh, um, I see. But they're crazy. They're awesome. Started by two Stanford grads. Both of them are amazing. Um, and like, I just didn't feel like we could compete in Canada, just given the government laws. Like, And, you know, maybe that's a losing mentality. I understand, you know, there's companies like Uber, for example, that have come out and, and they've broken a bunch of laws and somehow fought it and won. Um, but I feel like as a 20 year old in college, um, I just didn't feel like that was the right fight to, to battle. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about is these scooter companies right now, and I've been yeah. con contemplating them a lot because how do you go from nothing to all of a sudden flooding major cities and having these scooters everywhere that really benefit a lot of people, piss off other people. <laughs> Safe, safety wise, you know, on the fence. Okay. But then all of a sudden, just you're, you're just you're you're done. You're wiped. Like no one yeah. no one wants scooters like they wanted them a month ago or two months ago. You know. So I've been thinking about that a lot. How do you how do you pivot that? What and what's your take on that? What do you think companies 
that right now have basically like any pizza shop is not selling pizzas right now. Maybe they're delivering some, mm-hmm. but not at the level at which, I mean, you know, what, what's your, how, what's your recommendation here? How can we, yeah. how can we solve this? How can we resolve this? How can we pivot away from this? Well, I think it's twofold. I think a is, listen, I don't think scooters are the future of transportation um, as much as they're amazing. And I think it took me back to a time in Singapore growing up when I used to ride scooters. They kind of yeah. brought us back to the, the 90s Same. and early 2000s. Um, I think the idea behind scooters is, and, and I think the reason why you see companies like Lime and Bird successful is not because of the actual scooter. It's because of how accessible this mode of transportation right. is and how cheap it is. So it's more of a benefit of the sharing economy than it is an actual scooter when you look at it. So I think it's playing to that and trying to figure out what is the next mode of transportation that we can make affordable, accessible, and widespread. That's what you got to look at. The second thing is burning cash like that. Like I think Bird was announced that they burn about $20.3 million a month. Like, you know, these companies aren't profitable. And it makes me wonder, like, I understand they have to grow. They have to compete in various markets. They're trying to get a first mover advantage everywhere. But to what extent, like if you're only investing so much in scooters, you know, there are companies in China that I saw, they were putting in bikes, like shared bikes, and they have a bunch of bikes now that just don't have any customers because people have moved on to the cheaper option. So now you just have a bunch of bikes in various cities of China that aren't being used. You spent all of that cash just trying to get into those areas, and there's no way to repurpose those bikes into anything else. So I think it's really taking a good look at your business model and trying to figure out like, is this actually where we need to devote our resources to stay competitive 15 to 20 years down the road? So here's a business that you and I can co-found. Here's my pitch. We'll go to those companies in China, all the scooter companies, we'll take their inventory, we'll repurpose it, have distribution (laughs) channels and sell it to college students in three to six months from now when the sky's not falling. (laughs) Done, done, 50-50, you heard it here first, 50-50, I'm in. Nice, man. So so you guys, you know, speaking, going back to this acquisition that you guys have done, what did that look like? I mean, you guys are a startup and then you guys acquired another startup. How How are you guys going to parlay two different visions into this one kind of grand vision. And then what's your yep. eventual bigger pitch for the world? Yeah, so it was good because the, the vision for both companies coming in was was very much similar. Um, SocialRank has been a very affordable platform. It's very easy to use. And that's what we wanted to build TrueFan into as well. Um, because our goal is not to just be another analytics company that services Fortune 500 companies. We can do that. We have some great brands on board, whether it's a Samsung or an Uber Eats or a Netflix. We have those bigger companies on board. But what nobody has done, what nobody has done effectively in our space is gone after the small business owners that don't have a lot of money, time, or followers. If you're able to build a platform that is intuitive enough where it's easy to be able to derive value from it in a short period of time and it doesn't cost a lot of money, that's a gold mine in my opinion. So that's what we're trying to work towards. It was a similar vision that we had with Social Rank. We got the whole deal done in a month which was absolutely crazy. Um, when I talked to some of my friends who have made acquisitions or they sold their company, they've been telling me that it takes about five to eight months if you're lucky to get your deal processed in that time. So we moved really quickly because we really wanted to bring this platform on before the end of 2019. There was a lot of news that came out. And congratulations on that, by the way. That's that's a big deal. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. There, there was a lot of news that came out, I think about six months ago, and it was they were talking about the the death of the influencer marketing movement. You know, totally. I don't know. There was this great article that came out, I forgot where it was, 
Uh, and they kind of got into it, it that mm -hmm. it's a bubble, that it's a bubble. Yep. And you yep. mentioned something that I think was interesting before, which is that advertising is a bubble too. Bubble too. Instagram ads, Facebook ads, we know how much those CPCs are. You yeah. know, I've seen I've seen CPCs on LinkedIn and and Facebook that are like 12 bucks just for a click. And it's really hard to monetize that, obviously. Sure. Yeah. So there's like these bubbles that are out there in the marketing you know, advertising ecosystem. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? When when are these? When is there going to be a correction? I mean, if there's ever a time to be a correction, it's now when our entire world is being corrected. Yeah, and I'll tell you, those articles that were written, and by the way, I, I've read those articles too around influencer marketing is dead. It's going to change, whatever. Um, I think that was based on a very traditional model of influencer marketing, which is we're a brand, we're going to pay an influencer with millions of followers. We wouldn't care whether or not that influencer has fake engagement or fake followers. We're just going to pay them. And then on top of that, our metric for success is going to be impressions, not conversion. That was the old model of influencer marketing, where I think we're positioning ourselves. And there are other companies doing this as well, which I love, is they're trying to focus on micro influencers that have higher engagement rates, they're cheaper to work with, and they already buy from your brand. They're already a customer of yours. If you're able to take those three things and empower those people and activate them to start distributing content or start posting for you or start buying your product at a much higher level, that's a win. So I love that like eBay, I think it was uh, eBay and Unilever at Ten Lions, the marketing conference that happens every year in 2019. They said that they're not going to do influencer marketing anymore because they want to go and empower and reward their influential buyers and sellers. And that's amazing. That's exactly right. what we're talking about. It, try to engage your own audience before you start paying people that might have fake followers and fake engagement and aren't actually leading to any direct conversion. Well, see what I think about. I mean, I love the idea of, you know, direct response advertising or conversion focused advertising, you know, a direct huge emphasis on attribution and the things that we do. And yep. one of the hardest things to do on any social platform is to get attribution because the second that you put a couple extra little parameters with some UTM data or some information that's going to track something back in in you know Google or this or that and you're some conversion platform you know you've lost trust with people because they're like mm -hmm. oh well is that a tracking link is that a affiliate link what the heck is that I don't I don't want to click on that you know yeah how do we solve the attribution problem you know the direct mm -hmm. attribution problem not necessarily from a brand lift perspective or viewership perspective but from a sales from an actual conversion perspective. I think it's a understanding that the idea of sequential marketing is very true, which is it does take multiple touch points to finally get a consumer to convert and to make them do that in an authentic way. That's the critical thing. A bunch of people might swipe up to your website, but they might not actually buy at the end because they didn't even want to come in and buy this ad or buy this product. They just simply did it because they were told to do it by someone they looked up to. So I think it's a, when you are able to go through micro influencers and empower people, like for example, I'll tell you an example that happened to me a few days ago. I was looking for a mattress and I went on ND.com. Now I'm getting peppered with ND ads. I don't actually mind it though, because the ND ads that I'm being given are from actual consumers. They're sponsoring consumer posts that aren't getting millions of likes. They're only getting like 1,000, 2,000 likes. They're from people that have kind of smaller followings. But it's so authentic because they clearly bought the product, they've utilized it, and in the caption, they're so detailed about how this has benefited them. And these, are, to, and these are ads? These are ads. So Andy's putting money against customers of them who are buying their product and then asking them, can you talk about it online? We'll promote it. 
So that's uh, amazing, right? You're taking user-generated content, you're putting ad spend behind it, and now you're able to pepper all of these potential customers with ads from real people, real customers, as opposed to people that were just forced to put up a post. And then when th those posts, are they from, from the actual manufacturer or are they posts Sometimes that both. Sometimes oh, both. that's yeah. See, that's really interesting. So it's an yeah. individual user, just like you and me, that yep. goes to our Facebook page, and then yep. someone reaches out to us. They call us from corporate, and they yep. say, "We're going to fund this. Here's a thousand bucks." You know, they use the Facebook ad engine, they yep. fuel the account, yep. and then they go and fund that. I see. That's really it could interesting. Be, it could be that way, or it could be the other way, where you do assemble micro right. influencers, you make them buy the product, and you connect their Instagram account with your paid manager. Okay, right, and you're able it. to do that. Like, for example, I did a campaign with RBC, which is a bank in Canada a few months ago, went out to an event that they hosted for Gen Z, took a couple of stories, went home, did a post, and then they were the ones that promoted it to bring their audience over to what I had talked about because I talked about it in a very honest and raw way. Got it, got it. That's, I right? think that's, that's really cool. The, the interesting thing here is that creating that content and getting someone to actually go and, and to do that video, and that's, that's, there's a magic point in that because how do you convert mm -hmm. someone that's a customer Yep. to become an evangelist. And, and exactly. what does that process look like? And that's where true fans, right? Like not to pull ourselves, but that's where you got to start building a relationship with these people and rewarding them, giving them a discount, 20% off your next purchase, being able to give them exclusive access to things before it comes out. If I was Justin Bieber promoting the Changes album, I would have given the Changes album out 10 days in advance to 500 of my top fans in the United States allowed them to talk about it on social. Now they're literally going to be posting a story, listening to changes in advance and buzzing up interest among every music page and every music publication on the internet, right? Simple things like that can actually have a viral effect when you really think about it. That's incredible. So how can, how can people join up? How, what's the process to onboard? Is there a yeah. certain qualification of ad budget or what does that look like? No qualification of ad budget, as long as you're in North America, um, you, you do influencer marketing, you're looking for a tool potentially to find influencers or to validate whether an influencer had real followers and whether they're actually leading to people onto your page. Um, you can go on a truefan.io, T-R-U-F-A-N.io, and you can just contact us directly for a demo. Um, actually, next week, we're going to be launching a pricing page as well. So if you want to get onto a very basic version of Truefan, you'll be able to do that in a self-serving way. Nice. Um, speaking of self-serve, one way that I'd love to support this is that there's there's two things that we've really innovated at, at Dub, which is the idea to, to create um, quick ad hoc videos, phone, webcam, you know, DSLR, whatever it is, and then to actually embed those onto high value pages on your site. Mm. So imagine a video of you or your co-founder that's explaining how your pricing model works or how your subscription model. I love you know, that. Yeah. yeah, and 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 since we since we kind of peppered those, just to use your word, we've peppered those throughout the Dub platform, and now every single high value page has a video on it. We've we've stopped pitching. We don't pitch the product anymore. Now we've gone completely from hybrid outbound inbound to all inbound. I mean, we still have a lot of work to do, but we're we're trying to move in this direction of just you know scaling and you know minimizing the cost and not having to spend so much money in advertising. Um, so anyways, I'd love to support with you on, on that and, you know, we'll do a session at some point. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, what, here's a question for you, kind of specific. What is your North star metric for your business? Yeah, I think for us twofold is, um, sales. How many, how many people are we able to bring onto the platform? How much are we making in the year? We do have a goal of doubling our annual recurring revenue by the end of the year. 
and uh, and hopefully being able to assess our options from there. Right? What do we want to do? Do we want to get into another area of social media analytics? Do we want to go and partner up with bigger point of sale companies like Shopify and Lightspeed? Um, do we want to go down an unregulated path, a regulated path with the cannabis companies right now that are popping up in Canada? There's a bunch of things that I think we can do once we're in a very strong cash position, which is what we're trying to get to. Um, I think the second thing is customer satisfaction. We haven't been tracking it too much in the past couple of months, but it is something we're planning to do onwards. Um, is looking in and trying to figure out like, all right, what is our NPS score? What is our, our CSAT score? And trying to figure out how satisfied people are with what we built. So those two things I think are the North Star metrics for success in our opinion. Nice, man. And where can people find you on, on social? I know LinkedIn is your go-to channel. So yep. what's what's username or I guess they can just search for you by name. Yeah, by name, Swish, S-W-I-S-H. I believe I should be the only Swish on LinkedIn. Okay, but not, not the only Manu. Not the only Manu. M-A-N-U, <laughs> you will find multiple of those people. But uh, my last name, Goswami, G-O-S-W-A-M-I. And then uh, on Instagram and Twitter, go Swish, G-O-S-W-I-S-H. Cool. And then these, uh, this this was actually um, promoted on your Twitter handle as well. So, um, Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Nice, man. And then uh, final question. Do you believe that, uh, that there is a positive outlook um, within a very short amount of time in our current situation right now? And when... If so, is 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 that going to look like? Yeah, so I mean, we're kind of in different boats here. Like, obviously, you being in, in the United States and, and me being in Canada, um, we're all kind of fighting our own battles individually, if you will. But um, honestly, if I had to be very real, I don't think the situation is going to weather away anytime soon, sadly. Um, I think just looking at Canada and the U.S., we have uh, quite a lot of work to do to contain the virus. Uh, and then pass containing it to then give breathing room to our hospitals, to give breathing room for a vaccine to be developed, to then get that vaccine out to the people who need it the most, to be able to manage ICU rooms, to be able to make sure that people affected by corona can come in and get the care they need, but people that have a heart attack or go into cardiac arrest can also go and use emergency services at the same rate. And then finally, being able to eradicate the virus globally. So. I think this is the beginning of something a lot larger. I think people think that the quarantine might last a couple of weeks. I don't think it will. I think it's going to fluctuate, though. Like, I think we're going to get to June, hopefully in July, and we're going to be able to go outside. And we might even be able to go back to work. Um, but I think it's going to fluctuate based on how the levels of the virus are in various places. And as they continue to decrease and increase, the quarantine might be put back. Um, at the same time, though, there are a lot of benefits that have come out from the situation. If you want to be an optimist, um, I think people have gone back into their homes and they're starting to realize the importance of community, the importance of their family. I think a lot of people are taking their health not for granted anymore, especially entrepreneurs that tend to do that a lot. Um, and I think people are starting to realize that online is really the future. Like a lot of traditional brands had never thought about an online strategy, even though they were thinking about it. I think this is kind of the push now to really have to develop an online strategy and modernize to be able yeah. to keep up with where future consumers are especially going to be buying from. Nice, man. Well, that, that sounds like a TED talk to me right there. <laughs> and it's I a will TED, be delivering that in and two it's months. A TED talk, it's a TED talk <laughs> that we need virtually. So, um, Swish, thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Be well, my friend. Thank you.